Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I want to say before we read, your pastors did not call me up and say, Alan, you got to get down here and preach a message on church unity because we're in trouble. That is not the way your pastors work. They renounce any underhanded ways. But I share with them the commitment to expositional preaching, encountering the text as we've received it and applying its message to the people. And this text is the next text in the preaching series at my own home church through the book of Philippians. So let us bear in mind as we read this that sometimes the Bible doesn't just give us interesting facts, but it meddles with our lives. Uh, There's the old uh, story about the preacher who had a tendency to go from preaching to meddling. Uh, Often, Getting into the weeds of our lives can be somewhat uncomfortable, but what the Holy Spirit has revealed and inspired to be written, we are committed to believe it and to do it, and so I invite you to do that with me this morning as we read Philippians 4, 2-9. through I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things And the God of peace will be with you. Father, we ask for spiritual eyes to see spiritual truth that will change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Garrett Kell asked his pastors in recent days, what do you think the enemy would love to see in our church today? What do you think the evil one, our adversary, is up to right now? Think about it. Wouldn't the enemy loved to see right here among us all strife and division and factions and discontented grumbling against leaders and against each other, thinking the worst of those who disagree with us. He'd love to see crippling anxiety just tear us limb from limb and for us to embrace a godless way of thinking about our world and everything in it. But thanks be to God that Though sin may be crouching at the door, waiting to have us, and Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, the Lord is at hand. He's not far off. We were once far off from him, have been brought near by the blood of Christ together. And this text reminds us today that we, as the church, have resources to confront all of these challenges that we do not have by ourselves. We have all that we need. We have the Lord Himself, and we have one another. Jesus didn't just come for you, He came for us. And that is a glorious truth 
that we will not be in heaven by ourselves. The kingdom of God is not you and Jesus. It is all the redeemed of Christ, united with him forever. When conflict and anxiety and worldliness creep into the church, we go to war together with our Lord at hand, not far away or in the back shouting orders. He leads us in triumphant procession against the principalities of darkness. And this nearness of the Lord brings about a certain reasonableness and gentleness and peace together that the world cannot understand. Think about it. Think about how our world is so divided on everything. And if you disagree, you reject me. And we are enemies And we're always searching for ways that we can divide ourselves up and launch into our trenches and shoot at each other. That is not how Christians behave. Christians have things that bind us together, truths that bind us together that are indestructible. And so the book of Philippians, when you read the whole thing, you realize Paul is trying to unhitch our joy and our unity from things that can be taken from us and hitch them to things that cannot be taken from us. And so here, we're in chapter 4, which comes after chapters 1, 2, and 3. Just, just to remind us, in case you thought that this truth in the book of Philippians, that, I've, that Paul's written to this church, doesn't apply into this particular situation, you're mistaken. The truth that Paul has taught about striving side by side together in the gospel and considering one another as more important than ourselves, having one mind, one love, one direction, that's not just a vague generality. That actually comes to bear in a conflict between two individuals. It affects every part of our life. And agreeing in the Lord is not just the cessation of hostilities, but the presence of joy. For the church to agree in the Lord and covenant together is not just to say we'll put up with one another. It is to say we will celebrate and rejoice and things that cannot be shaken. So, this text teaches us something to do and how to do it. Paul expected the church to live out the implications of what he has already taught them, to actually complete his joy by being of the same mind and the same love, as he said in chapter 2, to actually strive with one mind for the spread of the gospel, as he said in chapter 1 and to build their life together on a foundation that can't be shaken. So, let's begin. In in verse 2, this dispute where Paul thinks it's relevant to name names was so public that it merited his attention, but it doesn't necessarily merit his mediation. This is significant enough so that it merited his attention, but he doesn't feel the need to weigh in on which one of them is right or which one of them is wrong. Instead, he takes this opportunity to publicly teach them about the resources they already have to resolve the conflict at hand. So, they can even live out what they've learned in this situation by choosing to agree in the Lord. Euodia and Syntyche were probably nodding through this whole book about being of one mind and having the same love and rejoicing in the Lord and Maybe They may have been side-eyeing one another, waiting for each other to realize that they were in the wrong. But Paul presses in, naming names here to say that whatever 
disagreement there is, there is something more important that they can agree in. Now, this being chapter 4, he has already talked about uh, uh, in chapter 3, verses 18, there are many of whom I've told you now and even tell you have told you again and again, with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross. He is very clear to identify those who walk as enemies of the cross. He identifies elsewhere those whose He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Watch out for evildoers. Because we're the circumcision. He wants this church to know the difference between a Christian and a poser. That is a very important distinction for him. And he doesn't make it here. Because Euodia and Syntyche are disagreeing about something besides the Lord. And so for that reason, they are equipped to mediate this themselves. Let's look at some of the resources they have. Number one, they have other people. Well, first of all, they have the Lord. The truth claims about Christ are the thing that unites them. The truth that brings them together is their common faith in the Lord Jesus. They also have a whole bunch of other people who share that same faith together with them. Paul expects true companion, whoever that is, to actually help these women agree. When two people in the body disagree, that affects the whole body. And so other members of the body have not only the right, but the obligation to help other people agree. This is what church membership brings into your life. And this is something you need as a Christian. You need to bind yourself to some, at least Jesus thought so, that you needed to bind yourself to the kind of people who could say, what you're saying is not the truth. What you're living is not the Christian life. And you are walking in a way that is not reflective of what is true about us together. You need that in your life, and you have it in meaningful membership in the body of Christ. They also have a common cause. When disagreement arises, it's always good to remind each other of shared labors. When we have disputes over secondary and tertiary matters, and we get very personally offended by them, we can forget all the meals we shared. We can forget all the labor in prayer for a lost friend we can forget the time that that person really was there for me in that time when I needed them. And it is good to remember that this side-by-side striving together for the spread of the gospel where we are is a cause that binds us together and is not worth sacrificing for something secondary. They also have a book of life. It matters not only that their names were written in the book of life, but that their names were written in the book of life by God Himself. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, in the flesh, came to buy all of the names in the book of life written before the foundation of the world. And so how now will you, Christian, treat the other names on that book of life? Remember where your name is written. Remember where His name and her name are written and who wrote it there. Whatever the Lord says about you is the truest thing about you, and there is nothing worth dividing that will harm that unity. Paul expected to discern that these people's names were in the book of life. And just because we can't see the heart as God sees doesn't mean that we should not seek to know whether someone is a Christian. The church has a responsibility to distinguish between someone who confesses the true faith of revealed in the Christ of Scripture and someone who does not confess the true faith of Christ revealed in the Scripture. We should know the Gospel and know that what a person is confessing is the Gospel or not. 
and how a person is living, Scripture has clearly revealed patterns of life that reflect a life changed by the Gospel. And so he expects the church to be able to tell these people who we've committed ourselves to are in one mind when it comes to what matters, truth claims about Christ, who came to this earth in the form of a servant, though he deserved the equality he had with God, and died the death that we deserve to cover our sin, bring us into his family, reconcile us to God together, and rose from the dead to seal it once and for all. Christ has pulled out a seat for you all at his family table, and died to make it permanent, and rose from the dead to bring you there himself. So, for this reason, our agreement in the Lord is why we recite our members' meeting, or we recite our covenant at our members' meeting. Think about the agreement of the Lord that's foundational to our church membership, and how important this one document is to considering one another as we do the work of the kingdom, bringing in members into our church, allocating our resources, caring for one another. You read this in your church covenant as you begin your members' meetings. We, who have been called as we trust by the grace of God, do, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, voluntarily and jointly separate ourselves from the world and give ourselves to the Lord, who has promised to receive us and be our God. We are no longer our own. With God as our witness, we promise to walk together by the power of the Holy Spirit as a church of Jesus Christ in love for the Lord and for one another. This is a declaration of a revolution. Renouncing our citizenship in the world, in the spiritual realm, and proclaiming ourselves to, as one body, be citizens of the next world. God's kingdom. Agreeing in the Lord. So that whatever happens as a body, we agree in the Lord. My church does this. Your church does this, and this is why you need this as a Christian. You need to surround yourself with those who can call you back to the truth when you wander away. When you're deceived, you don't know that you're deceived, but other people do whenever their minds are transformed by what God has revealed. And so, because Christ brought you into His family, the family treats you like family. You Theoretically, can be a Christian without being a member of a church, but I'm not sure how you know if you're a Christian, if you are not accountable to Christians who are entrusted with the responsibility of identifying those who truly believe the gospel revealed in Scripture. So how do we live this out? What does this look like in daily life? What sort of person can be found agreeing in the Lord? Just as it matters where you agree and what you agree in, it matters what you rejoice in. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. The world doesn't know how to rejoice in the Lord. The world doesn't know how to rejoice in anything except circumstances and stuff. And for this reason, we display our gentle reasonableness to all kinds of people. This rejoicing in the Lord and agreeing in the Lord is that anointing oil running down Aaron's beard that marks him out as God's priest. We, the kingdom of priests to God who represent 
God's appeal to the world and pray to God for the world who have renounced our citizenship in the world and consider ourselves members of God's kingdom. We are God's priesthood to the world. And this supernatural unity that the world cannot explain, that transcends worldly differences and secondary issues, uniting us in what we believe about Christ, His death and resurrection for us. That is the kind of unity that makes people go, I don't understand how any human institution can operate that way. And that's because we're not a human institution. God's kingdom is not of this world. Our king is not anybody seated on any throne on this earth. But it is the one who was slain for the world and is seated on his throne and will one day make a new heavens and a new earth where we will reign with him. And that is the truest thing about a church beyond any differences that would assault that. Your Bible might say reasonableness or gentleness being made known to everyone. This describes a pattern of life towards each other that is more informed by what God says than by our personal preferences. We can be gentle and reasonable with all kinds of people, no matter the differences, if we agree in the Lord. Now that also means that if we do not agree in the Lord, that will harm our unity in a way that will require us to do something very difficult. And that is treat someone as though they are not a member of the body. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we cannot treat you as a member of the body. If you are content to live as one who is a law unto themselves, we cannot treat you as a member of the body. But We will treat you as one that must be brought in if you're going to be reconciled to God. And so the door remains open even when agreement in the Lord is violated. But here, the kind of reasonableness and gentleness that we display among ourselves is grounded in the nearness of the Lord because we can know exactly who we are accountable to as church members and know who these people are that confess this gospel together that binds us. We can be reasonable with them because the Lord is at hand. Not even because we, necess- not even because we like them, even though we typically like the people in our churches, should be friendly to one another, but what really grounds our reasonableness and our behavior towards one another, our together rejoicing, is the nearness of the Lord. Now I'll tell you what this is not like, and then I'll tell you what it's like. This is not like two petulant children who can only get along if they remember that mom and dad are in the next room and are going to come and whop somebody if they don't behave themselves. That is not what it means for us to be gentle with one another because the Lord is at hand. This is more like a brother and sister who are anxious about a situation going on, but they think it's okay because dad's around. It's okay because mom and dad, they, they trust mom and dad in a way that only children are ingrained to trust their parents to say in their own souls, this is not something I need to worry about. A five-year-old does not necessarily worry if they're going to have anything to eat if mom and dad have a reputation for providing for them. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in addressing the very issue of anxiety, why do you worry about that? Look at the birds and how he feeds them. Consider the lilies and how he clothes them. Will your father not give you the good gifts that you ought to have. 
So we do not solve our anxiety and our strife with one another by agreeing to disagree alone, but by remembering that the Lord is not only powerful, but He is there. Remembering, we remember this in something like in, in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We remember that in these very, with this very tangible oath sign that we have committed to one another to be together, we, we remember in the Lord's Supper that we actually belong to a, the body of Christ. And that reminder that the Lord is here, that He's among us, He's present, He's at hand, keeps us from killing one another over aspects of the building or the way we order our services or whether we decide to proceed in a certain way on the other side of a global pandemic, whatever that looks like. The nearness of the Lord and the knowledge that He cares makes us reasonable with one another and keeps us rejoicing together. How hard is it to sing in a room full of people who are at each other's throats five minutes ago and five minutes from now? But how good it is when Brothers and sisters dwell in unity. They can sing a song of joy that the world does not understand. This is this nearness is reflected in our life together as we refuse to be anxious and pray about everything. The truth that the Lord is at hand murders anxiety. It is difficult to worry about what you will eat and drink and put on and what will happen to you when you remember the reputation of the Lord who is in your very midst. And we remember that by praying. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If you are anxious about something, that falls under the category of anything that you don't worry about and everything that you pray about. There is nothing excluded from those absolute categories. Nothing is worth anxiety. Everything is worth prayer. If you're worried about it, pray about it. If you are anxious, pray. Some some aspects of our spiritual life are that simple, though they are born out in complex ways and dynamic, our dynamic inner life, but I don't want that to dull the very clear admonition to not be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything because the Lord is at hand and what a Lord we have at hand. Making a request to to God with thanksgiving revolutionizes how, has personally for me revolutionized how I think about prayer and I hope it does for you today as well. There's a tension we feel in our prayer that we want to be content with what we have, but We also know that the Lord is powerful and He loves us and He wants to do things for us. And the way we hold those together is with thanksgiving. We make prayers and supplication with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving makes us ambitious to ask for more when we remember all that God has done. When you think of all the things that the Lord does for you, how how God Himself, the God that we know revealed in Scripture, the God whose glory we have seen in the face of Christ, He is upholding the universe by the word of His power. Nothing is beyond His providence. And so we can be ambitious to ask Him for all the things that He has already 
given us with our thanksgiving. When we're, when we're thankful to God, we remember what He's done. And also thanksgiving reminds us to be... Thanksgiving not only makes us ambitious, but it makes us humble and content with what we have. So we can be ambitious and ask for things without being demanding and accusing God of wrongdoing for not giving it to us. Thanksgiving makes us ambitious to ask for more and humble, humbly content with what we already have. When we have nothing and we see ways that we would love for God to provide for us and He doesn't, we make those prayers with thanksgiving anyway. We make those prayers with thanksgiving and remind our own souls and preach to ourselves the goodness of God and His dealings with us. Contentment is not refusing to ask God for anything. Contentment is not just doing without. Contentment is a posture of the heart that is content with the way God has dealt with you and refuses to accuse Him of wrongdoing. As Job said, the Lord gave, the Lord take away, took away. But in His taking away, He was not wrong. He was not sinning against me. He was doing a very good thing, even though I do not understand it. Thanksgiving guards us from presumption. The result of that is that the peace of God, which is beyond understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard implies the presence of a threat. You don't guard something unless there's something coming after it. Satan is crouching at the door, waiting to have us. He's prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he would devour you with anxiety. He would devour you with discontentment. Why has the Lord chosen to treat you this way? You deserve to not have any pain. You deserve to not have that happen to you. You deserve to be able to go out in public without the threat of invisible danger. You deserve to be able to hug your loved ones and gather with those you care about. Satan is accusing God of wrongdoing night and day, and he would have your heart believing that. But prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, making our requests known to God, remembering He is at hand, this peace of God together guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul loves to use that phrase, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. We agree in the Lord, we rejoice in the Lord, and our Hearts and our minds are guarded, not in an expectation that things will get better, but in the presence of Christ among us. And we can celebrate that and rejoice in that all the time. Unhitch your joy from things that can be robbed from you in a moment and hitch your joy to that which cannot be shaken. Finally, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. A relationship to Christ is not another membership card you put in your wallet between Costco and Planet Fitness. It is a completely transformed mind and heart that has different values. This text reveals something that we can forget very easily, and that is that God cares just just as much about what you like, what you marvel at, what you're amazed by, as He does about what you do. Because what you dwell on, what you find yourself not able to get enough of, what what you think is amazing and cool, 
That is revealing a place where your heart is. That is revealing a posture of your heart towards those things that you are responsible to God for. There are entire sectors of our economy devoted to capturing your eyeballs and your affections, and most of them are lying to you about what is true and honorable and just and pure. Are you passively taking that in? Because if you're passively taking in a worldly view of all of these things, all of these postures of the heart, all of these affections, if you're devoted to a worldly view of those, you will not be able to dwell in peace with other people in the way that God describes. You will not be able to rejoice in the Lord if your rejoicing is located in a system of thought that says things that God says are good and right and true or not good and right and true. It matters what you think is honorable and just and lovely and excellent when you bind yourself to other people because you might have differing opinions about what is just and right and good. And so that must be transformed by exposure to the Word of God. And our union with one another in Christ is the only place worth grounding our unity because that is the only place we can go. God's revelation in Christ, shining in our hearts, His goodness, that is the only place that we can go to get a transcendent evaluation of what is just and pure and lovely and excellent. And so when we have that mind together, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 1-4, the, the mind that we have together, which is ours in Christ, which Christ exemplified for us, that mind that we have together thinks the same way about what is lovely and commendable and worthy of praise because it is just transformed by what God says and not by what the world says. This is the means by which God will guard our hearts and minds when we have peace with each other because we're all fighting for the same thing. We're not going to fight each other when we have a common enemy and a common loyalty. Soldiers all have the same flag on their shoulder for a reason. To remind themselves, just the, the superior, surpassing goal of their mission. And that is the protection of their sovereign. No one ever thought Christ was surpassingly valuable because Christians seemed devoted to having the same things that they wanted to have. If you come to Christ to get something in the world, Christ has been made a genie who can give you things and not a supreme treasure. A peaceful life together where though we disagree widely about so many things that is marked by rejoicing in the Lord and agreement in the Lord, that that gives the world a compelling message about the worth of Christ. What could be so precious, so worth having that all these different kinds of people from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life can come together in such an intimate way? Well, that must be something I've never seen in this world before. It must be something that came down from heaven and revealed something that our hearts were made to long for and have only found in what God has given us that we could not get for ourselves. What is that? People will be knocking down the doors to the place where the church meets when they see the church treasuring the surpassing worth of knowing God 
far and away above all that the world can offer them. It will soften the hearts of those who we are explaining the gospel to when they see these people treasure something so valuable that it brings them together in this way. Worldly thinking will have us shooting at each other according to the worldly trenches that have been dug for us to jump in. But agreement in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, being of this one transformed mind together in the Lord will have us refusing to behave as those whose portion is in this life and not in the next life. Finally, he encourages them to follow an example. And that's not just, that's not just a bare claim that is, says you should act like me. This is a very sophisticated, this is a very loaded phrase of Paul's at this point in the book because he has just this this book is laden with real examples. Paul is not commanding anything. He has not already shown them what it looks like. In chapter 1, he gives his own example. Rejoicing in prison. Rejoicing in people slandering him. Rejoicing in his oppression. Because it is the very activity by which the gospel is progressing. He's rejoicing in prison, rejoicing in in opposition because the gospel is advanced. He gives the example of Timothy and his single-minded devotion to Christ. He says, Timothy, you, you know him. He worked like a son works for his father. That's how singularly devoted he was to the things of God and not his own. Then he gives the example of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was someone the Philippians knew very well who they sent to minister to Paul in his need and Paul sent him back. He risked his life for the good of the church. Epaphroditus did something I probably wouldn't do. It says, Paul tells the Philippians that Epaphroditus, though he was to the, near the point of death, risked his life to minister to me on your behalf for your own good. See, Epaphroditus was in such a physical state that he probably could have said, you know what, I'm pretty near the point of death. I should probably sit out this journey. But he didn't ask for a day off. He didn't ask for a break. He didn't send somebody else. He went. And what distressed him was not his own situation, but the fact that the Philippians were worried about his well-being. He risked his life for the good of the church, didn't seek the rest he was entitled to, but he emptied himself. Sounds like someone else. Christ, in chapter 2, who fully deserved the equality he had with God. It was no robbery for Jesus to have equality with God. He deserved it. He's the divine son from before the foundation of the world. Uncreated, truly God, like substance with the Father. But he didn't exploit that for his own ends. He took on the form of a servant. He took on human flesh. Took to himself a a rational soul like ours. And he humbled himself to the point of death for us. That is what brings us into the family of God. And that should inform every word that crosses your lips to your brothers and sisters. Every thought that crosses your mind about all the people sitting in this room and those who are not sitting in this room. When thoughts of judgment or assumptions cross your mind, remember that the only reason you're members of the same church is because God came here to die for you. And all of you together. So, follow the example and have the same mind 
rejoicing in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord, and this will result in a peace the world doesn't understand. If you act like this, not only will you know the peace of God, you will know the God of peace. Verse 9 flips it around. The God of peace Himself. Agreeing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, knowing the Lord, transformed from what we were to what we do a little bit more like what we will be. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this church would be marked by an agreement in the Lord and would know the God of peace in such a way that it results in a peace that is compelling to outsiders and salutary for the body. I pray health for this church that thinks the way you think about what is lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. That they would not fail to do anything that they know to be right. Not fail to consider one another in every decision and every action. We ask that we would help each other to agree in the Lord. Remind each other what's true when disagreements arise. Remember who we are. In Jesus' name.